Thanks for being with us on this Sunday morning. Well, you might have heard about this story, and the mayor of Enderby is calling on Ottawa to do something after an alleged ISIS supporter was released in B.C. and in that part of B.C. Joining me on the line is the mayor of Enderby, Greg McCune. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. You're more than welcome. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, I heard you speaking with Charles Adler on his program about this, and we'll get into a bit of the background, but has anything changed uh, since then or since you put this call on onto Ottawa or asked for something to happen in this case? Uh, we haven't heard much. We've been in, in talks with our local MP, Mel Arnold, but uh, we haven't heard anything from any of the powers to be. All right, so bring us up to date then. The the person we're talking about is a man by the name of Othman Ayed Hamdan. He was uh, released uh, into the community. Uh, the court upheld the decision by uh, the Immigration and Refugee Board that ordered the release. Uh, where do things stand at this point with him being in the community and your concerns about that? Um, well, once we got over the initial you know, surprise and shock... Um you know, I mean, we don't we don't know if the gentleman's here. We we know very little, which is which is frustrating, and it's frustrating for the community. Uh, you know, I think everyone's willing to to go along with the procedures as as much as we think that they they may be a little bit goofy. Um, you know, we're obviously the RCMP. I would think would uh, would have their action plan well under underway. But as far as letting the general public know, we we really haven't heard anything. We have. We, we don't know if he's here. Uh, there's no pictures of him. There's no... Um, so, yeah, so we're just kind of just a little bit still sitting here in, in a little bit of disbelief. Hmm. And so, and, and if I'm clear on this, so he had been in immigration custody uh, since 2017, but earlier uh, in August, uh, in early August, the Refugee Board ordered that he could be released and he could go and live with a friend in Enderby who posted a $2,000 bond. That's correct. I mean, he he had hearings pretty much monthly, and 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 every time the agencies that that believe that he should still be detained until his deportation um, always seem to win. That you know they they were able to prove that yeah he he possibly could be a threat to to Canadians. So all of a sudden a, a gentleman in Enderby put up his hands and say, hey, I kind of know him from a while ago. I'll, I'll take him in. I'll I'll let him out. So. And right away, that triggered that that opportunity for him. Um, the the person that ran the hearing at the time just imposed a bunch of conditions, which they felt uh, would keep Canadians safe, and and that's where we got to today. Uh, and those conditions, uh, things like uh, not to use the internet, uh, he's not to drive, he's not to possess any weapons. Uh, are you satisfied, though, or convinced that there's anybody checking to make sure that he's following those conditions? There, there's definitely people checking, so so that that is the good part, and I think that's probably the most comforting part. Um, I believe the you know he has to contact the border security service people every day. Um, the RCMP will be checking on him nonstop, so I, <clears throat> that's not a concern for our community. I don't you know, so that's actually probably the highlight of the part is we we know that he'll be monitored and uh, and looked after. It's just again is the you know our, I think our letter to Ottawa was more. You know, was was a rural community the right place to to do this? Just because someone said we'll we'll you know post the bond and take it, um, there was no consultation with the local government, uh, the local RCMP, uh, local MPs, MLAs, nobody. Right. So I think you know, rural and obviously urban centers are quite a bit different. And and when it comes down to this, I think they have to look a little bit farther into the 
into the future to see if these things work. You know, is there, is there these services that will provide the safety to Canadians that, that Canadians deserve? And as far as you know, then, did anything change? Because here we have somebody who was in custody again since 2017. Did anything change other than this person in Enderby coming forward, offering the $2,000 bond and saying he can stay with me? Exactly. That's about the, you know, that's the thing that seemed to turn it around, which when you think about that, um, if that's as little as it takes, um, you know, again, without, you know, calling the community and saying, hey, is this something that you guys can deal with? Is this something you can handle? So, um, yeah, no, as far as as far as we know, that's the defining thing is, is this person chose to post that bond and uh, and the way it the, the dominoes just started to fall over. Uh, do you know who the person is in Enderby that reached out and that posted the bond? I do, yes. And is that somebody then that, that you would feel comfortable talking to or asking or or even making sure that person is keeping, I don't know if it's keeping an eye on him is the, is the right thing or that, that he is following the rules? Well, and I, I think that's, you know, that's the interesting thing. I, you know, I, I honestly I don't know, really. I don't know him well enough. I know who he is. I know his, his family and... Uh, um, again, I, you know, I think he believes he's, he's doing something right. Um, you know, and, uh, I think that's, you know, I think that's probably part of our problem now. Our, our laws and law enforcement don't really line up anymore. Um, and I think that's what, again, part of, you know, our discussions with Ottawa and, and the province of British Columbia will be, you know, are we, we have all of these experts and we have all of these people that do certain duties, but if we choose to ignore their advice, um, just because we may or may not hurt someone's feelings or or we may or may not, you know, we in, in a political standpoint, you know, half the time it's just, I need to get reelected so I will do this, right? And and that's probably the most frustrating thing that, that I see and I think most Canadians see is is just, you know, we're not listening to, you know, if, if the border services come, come forth and say, hey, this person probably should be detained until he's deported, um, it's, it's again, an odd thing that, you know, a $2,000 bond would, would make a difference in, you know, who, who are you listening to the people that are the experts or, or someone who just said, eh, I'll take them. Yeah. So, it does seem like a bit of a disconnect. Uh, the person who took him in, I mean, is this a long time Enderby resident or, or is it somebody who's just showed up there? No, he's, he's lived here. I think most of his life. And do you have any idea why he came forward and said, I'll take this person in? Um, my understanding, just by the documents, is that uh, they they worked together years ago uh, in another part of British Columbia, and and obviously they became friends. And uh, he was following this gentleman's, uh, um, I guess, life. And you know, he had the opportunity again with no one stepping forward. There, there obviously was no opportunity. It was very easy for you know for the immigration and them to uh, you know we did, we we have been told he will be deported. So it's you know that and actually one of the one of the clauses in, in the things he's supposed to follow is that he has to actively participate in that deportation now. He's, he's spent many, many of years trying to block it. So, so you know what, it's, it's what it is. Um, very few of us here can figure out why it makes sense. Um, but I guess for now, we'll just, we'll go with it. And uh, again, I, you know, I, I, from a safety standpoint, I'm not concerned at all. Um, I, you know, it's just, it's just, it's, it's a it's a 
a difficult inconvenience for a, for a little tiny community. Well, and I would suppose too, so the, the Canada Border Services Agency in their uh, arguments as to why, I think why this person should be deported and even detained uh, was that he had made uh, references in Facebook posts to blowing up or to, to targeting, having a terrorist attack on the Revelstoke Dam, which isn't that far away from Enderby. Uh, is that why he's being deported or do you know why? You know, I, I think just um, I think the belief is again the the agencies and, and the experts in you know security and 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 in forward law enforcement. You know, I, I I believe they felt this person was a risk. I mean, obviously he was he was tried on that and and through. I mean, there's millions of pages of documents. I mean, through there he was actually you know not found guilty on on some of the counts and uh, but. You know, he there was enough, I believe, evidence that they felt that oh, this person just just needs to not be in Canada, and uh, so that's you know that's what they're doing. They're they're pursuing that, but again, we we become this where I say laws and law enforcement don't line up. It's you know it's and and even if you if you read the last hearing where he was he was released to Enderby, um, you know they they were concerned about his feelings and they were concerned about uh, how difficult this has been on him. And they were concerned about a lot of those things, but but again, they didn't, you know, think to call us and ask our feelings and and what we think and, and that type of thing. So, so again, that's odd. I mean, we're we're living in that world now where we, you know, again, we believe getting rid of straws might change the world, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's it's I don't know, it's just it's a different time we're living in, and and hopefully, again, the people that are the experts. Uh, at some point, I would love for the court system to, you know, rely on on their expertise. Well, and so where, where we stand now then, or where your community stands at this point is, uh, he's in the community, he's got several conditions, uh, he's staying with this person who's put up a $2,000 bond, but clearly he's done enough questionable things that he's still being deported. So now is it uh, kind of waited out uh, through the deportation process until he's deported? Exactly. That's, you know, I mean, we don't, really have a lot of say right so um which again is frustrating to us it'd be nice to you know be consulted so we could say you know like like very similar we're 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 kind of a border community from the okanagan and the shushwab um so we're a town of three thousand. and and for example just even even for someone to go see uh uh, a specialist and so they get referred to a, a specialist in salmon arm or vernon well our our services tend to lean towards salmon arm the way the province has set it up so we only have one bus that goes there on wednesday so if you can imagine having to phone that specialist and saying and he says yeah i can see you in six weeks or whatever and you go can it only be on a wednesday because mm-hmm. that's the only day i can get there so so that's the the odd thing about where we are we just we don't from healthcare through to you know we're, we're this lovely community that that lacks services um we're constantly lobbying the provincial government to improve those. So again, it's, it's odd that they would see this fit to pick our community as, hey, we'll just put this person here and, and everything will be fine without talking to us at all. All right. Well, we'll leave it there, but uh, certainly follow up on what happens in this case. Uh, Mayor McCune, thank you so much for joining us and talking about it this morning. You're more than welcome. Have yourself a great day.
Well, what to do with the Granville Street Bridge? If you drive over that bridge or walk over it or cycle over it, uh, you know a thing or two about it. The city has now unveiled six proposed designs looking at the future of the bridge. The big question now is which of those six would be the best choice? Let's bring in Neil Lamontagne, the uh, city planner and urbanist. He is joining us on the line now. Neil, thank you so much for being with us. Well, good morning, Jill. Happy to be here. Uh, so glad to have you on the program. Which one of the six, and we'll go through some of the finer points of the six options, so which one do you like best? I like the. I think Westside Plus is emerging as the winner, but I, quite frankly, I'm just happy to see something happen on the bridge. <laughs> because what do you think the biggest issue is with it right now? Uh, yeah, I, it just doesn't work for a lot of people, uh, particularly those who live near the bridge, and a lot of people that, uh, live near the bridge. If you have any kind of mobility challenge, you, you, that bridge isn't for you. I, I remember trying it once with my daughter when she was in a stroller. We tried that once. Not ever going to happen again. <laughs> and what, because of the on-ramps or getting onto the bridge and, and navigating the bridge itself? Exactly, exactly. The sidewalk's narrow. There's not a lot of space. You can't move from, from the ramps to the side to the middle. Um, so because of the sidewalks are stepped down, uh, there's no signalized intersection. It's a challenge. Um, all right. What about, though, so we were hearing often that it's not at capacity, that it was built for part of a bigger system that never happened, exactly. and that it's not it's not at capacity. Um, I do live near the bridge, and I remember last summer uh, the bridge was shut down for a police incident for a couple of hours. It caused chaos on the other bridges and in the neighborhood. And to me, it kind of brought forward that it might not be a capacity, but it is a, a very significant and important part of the road system for vehicles. Absolutely. And I think all the options maintain that. There's still a minimum of six lanes of vehicle travel on all the options. So there's more than enough capacity. The capacity always comes up as an issue exactly with, like in a case like you raised where there's an action, right? There's a horrible accident because someone is um, speeding excessively or someone decides to you know, try to take a life or whatever, and you have to shut a big portion of the bridge. That's when you have significant congestion issues. Uh, so let's look through some of the options. So you said West Side Plus is possibly emerging as, as the winner. So this is a west sidewalk, a bi-directional bike lane on the west side of the bridge, a widening of the sidewalk as well on the east side. Uh, so pedestrian cyclists would access from Granville Street. There'd be a second pedestrian access point. Uh, traffic lights would be added to Fur and the Howe ramps. Uh, the cost between 30 and $40 million. So what, what is attractive to you about this one? It, I look for the options that provide, I think, uh, a better and safer, uh, whatever, pedestrian, um, uh, wheelchair, bike access on both sides. So that's what the plus options do. So it's a little more narrow uh, versus you know, on the west side plus versus the west side on the west side. But it's uh, more balanced. So that's what I, I'm looking for in those options. The uh, the one I think that's getting a lot of attention, and not not perhaps because it's the best one, but because it's different, is the midspan, the cross yeah. section going right down the center. I think it's also the most expensive one as well. What do you think about that one that makes this corridor down the middle of the bridge? Yeah, that's a that's a surprising one because when the initial proposal was done, what was it, 2012? That emerged as the most obvious choice, and I'm a little surprised that it performs uh, as poorly. But what I didn't really consider was the need to have the connections 
uh, at the ramps. So the problem with the raised center is it only works if you're at Granville Street. It doesn't work if you're, you have to access it from Fir or to access it from Hemlock or Seymour or Hornby. So I think that's where that one's starting to become problematic. Right. So because I'm looking now at the, the artist's rendering. So if you're mm-hmm. walking along, say, 7th Avenue and you get to Hemlock and then you take a right to go to the bridge, exactly. if you do that now, you can get on. Granted, you have to cross the bridge. There is a crosswalk that's not lit on the bridge, but yeah. you can still get to the other side if you need to. So under that proposal, what you wouldn't be able to. You'd have to keep walking before the bridge, I guess, to Granville Street to access it. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, so what about, uh, let's look at a couple of the other ones. So, so the other one being the east side. So is there a benefit or, 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 or uh, the difference between the going east side or west side to you? What, what is the difference there? Well, it, we do love those west side views. But I think the real, <laughs> <laughs> the real benefit of the west side is it connects to the fur off ramp. And the fur off ramp doesn't have the slope. Um, or first street doesn't have the slope. It, it really connects up to Granville Street almost uh, not flat, but much more flat than the other options. So to have that west side uh, off, you know, be able to cycle or walk or wheelchair off of the west side would be much easier. All right, so easier than the east side. Exactly, or the center. Or the, the center. Yeah. The center, as you know, if you drive down there, you have to really come down and then come back up Granville Street. Uh, and what about so the idea too? And and this is more on the center one. Although the other options, all the the artists' uh, renderings of them. I mean, there's one shows people walking along with a giant a cluster of helium balloons because who doesn't do that on a Sunday afternoon? Go across the bridge with your helium balloons. Uh, they're all oh, lovely with, with the unicycle. With the unicycle, <laughs> exactly. Um, at what point did we get to to the point where we need the bridge to be a place where we hang out? Because if you're driving, it's it's getting from point A to point B or, or cycling or even walking for the most part. Uh, we have a lot of parks. We have a lot of places in Vancouver to hang out. Why do we need to hang out on the bridge? Uh, well, you know, I think Burrard Bridge is an example of a place that it's not, it's kind of an interesting place to be. It's a different experience in the city. It does have some pretty spectacular views. It's one of the best places to watch fireworks from. And if you're traveling over there, even on a regular basis, it's not a bad place to stop and just admire and appreciate living in the city. So Gravel Street would provide another interesting opportunity just for something different in a different kind of space. I don't think it's going to be, it's not going to replace Granville Island or the beaches or a major park, but any time we're making a move, why not add a little bit of joy? <laughs> and if you just need to sit down and take a break, it's nice to have a bench to do that. Absolutely. You know, it's, uh, anytime you talk transportation in the city, the thing that surprises me that you hear the most from is people asking for a place to stop and sit comes up all the time. Really? I would have thought garbage cans would be more of an, a want than a bench. I, I would have thought get rid of the bike lanes. But, you know, <laughs> give us a place to sit and a place to go to the bathroom. Yeah, those those are two, yeah, two not 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 bad wants for sure. Yeah. Um, where do we go from here on the the options are put out there. There are uh, there are differences in them, there are subtleties. I think ones that you pick up on more being a city planner than than people might to just looking at the the drawings. Where do we go from here on this, do you think? Well, you know, it's uh, city being city. They have a lot of process ahead. Uh, I think they're going through another round of public engagements. There's probably at least two more council uh, check-ins. So we'll see what happens. It's going to be up to council, uh, which, which, how they want to uh, weigh the different uh, costs and benefits. Right, because we're talking about difference, uh, difference of millions of dollars, too, with the different yeah. options. Yes. Yeah. Uh, is there anyone, would you say this, the raised down the center should be off the table? Or is there anyone that you think is absolutely the wrong choice? 
Um, no, I think the, uh, the I mean, I think they looked at 20 and they took a lot of them off the table. So the six that are in play now are reasonable. Right. The, the one where everybody hooks up to a zip line and goes across the bridge was taken off the table. Unfortunately. <laughs> that would be a fun one. Oh, I'm kidding. That was never, that, that was never on the table. Um, and, and realistically, when might we see a new type of, or this structure, this, uh, this built into the bridge? Then they're looking at, what, 2022 or 2021? Uh, so we're looking at a few years out. Uh, I think they're, my guess is they're going to look to time it when they're doing a lot of the improvements for the uh, Broadway SkyTrain extension. Because mm-hmm. you're already disrupting the streets then, so that's when you want to do it. You want to minimize disruption to traffic, so that's the play. Uh, and, and regardless of which one is chosen, do you think this will be a huge disruption as far as traffic on the bridge while this is happening? This, you know, we had, a, I think, a pretty big disruption with Burrard. This is a bridge with a lot more capacity. So I think there will, there's always disruption when you have construction. This won't be as dramatic. This will be much more manageable. All right. Well, we will leave it there, and uh, people can go and check out all of the different options and read about the costs and the benefits and uh, what have you. Uh, Neil LaMontagne, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this today. Appreciate it. Uh, wonderful. Have a wonderful Sunday. Well, last weekend on the program, if you were listening, you would have heard us talking about a case involving a dog that had been sentenced to be euthanized after the dog bit a woman at a Vancouver park, but in the 11th hour got a reprieve. So that fight is continuing and could actually make its way to the Supreme Court of Canada. Well, my next guest is here to talk a little bit more about the case and what is perhaps a dangerous precedent being set in this particular case. Rebecca Bretter is a Vancouver animal law lawyer and joins me on the line now. Rebecca, great to have you back on the show. Good morning, Jill. Uh, What are your thoughts on the case of this dog, of Punky uh, the dog, and where things stand right now in the courts? Well, in a nutshell, I think this is an absolutely devastating loss for dogs in British Columbia and for animals in general. Um, what this case essentially now says, it's a little bit technical, so let me just briefly explain the way it used to be. It used to be that a dog, once he or she bit or got into a little bit of a kerfuffle with another dog, once that dog was deemed dangerous by a judge, the dog was allowed to be released back on conditions. Those are called conditional orders. And what this case now says is that those conditional orders, releasing dogs that otherwise are good dogs, could be managed, could be rehabilitated, are not allowed to be released back. And what that means is that it's an automatic death sentence for dogs. So this is, this is what the entire case was about. It's uh, at this point, I mean, my heart goes out to Punky, the, the, the dog in question in this case, no question about it. But my heart goes out even more to all dogs in British Columbia because they could potentially all be affected now by this case. And it's just, it's a devastating loss because we have so many good dogs that are either in the right, uh, in the wrong hands and could be adopted out to better people, or they were with good people who made a mistake and who need to learn. But because of the loss of this terrible loss in this case, uh, people and dogs in particular will not have that second chance. But I do see a little, okay, all of that said, I do see, uh, I mean, I've been litigating these cases for well over 10 years, and I can literally say that I have never, ever lost 
a case like this before. And I'd like to say, oh, because of my brilliant legal argument, (laughs) but I mean, maybe a little bit has to do with that. But um, in the past, it was because I was able to convince judges that, yes, they're allowed to release dogs on conditions, and this is what we're going to do. Now, unfortunately, I will not be able to argue that. But the glimmer of hope that I do see, a little bit of a glimmer, is that the judges in this case said, well, as long as a dog owner can show that the dog does not pose an unacceptable risk to the public, the dog can be returned back. And so there's a little bit of hope in there, but we're yet to see how that pans out because as it stands now, it's a terrible, terrible precedent. And it just breaks my heart because some of the media has been portraying this case as a win in animal law, which is like beyond me how that could be portrayed like that. Um, it, it, the, the latest development was that the dog, Punky, was not uh, killed when he was supposed to be killed. The judge uh, stayed the order, meaning like the judge basically said, OK, don't go ahead and kill the dog just yet. Give them a chance to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. So that's great. Like that, that, that is great. But the decision as it stands now is terrible. And what I do hope, uh, I do hope that the dog owner uh, gets a chance to go to the Supreme Court of Canada so that they can reverse this terrible precedent and that things can go back to the way they were because we had a system that worked and, and it just breaks my heart that this case even went as far as it did. Well, and that's, I think, maybe where where the, the line's coming that it was a win is when the reprieve, the 11th hour reprieve was given and the possibility that the case could go to the Supreme Court of Canada. What confuses me about this, and when we talked to uh, uh, Ms. Schroff, the, the lawyer for the owner of Punky last weekend, is mm-hmm. municipalities, where, wherever you live in, in Metro Vancouver or, or BC, they have rules for dangerous dogs. And I'm sure you know all about those and that mm-hmm. if a dog has shown aggression, it needs to be muzzled or you need to have a sign. I mean, the rules, depending on where you live, are a bit different. Uh, but if we already have those, aren't those the rules that come into play when something like this happens? Yeah, so that's a very good question. It depends how the city in question wants to deal with it. So you're right. You're very right. Most cities, if they have an animal control type of bylaw, they almost all include provisions how if a dog bites or causes some kind of injury, the dog has to, going forward, be muzzled and put on other types of restrictions. But if the city wants to take a further step and apply to the court to have the dog killed, that's when these quote-unquote dangerous dog laws uh, come into play. It's under provincial statute. So, yeah, you know, it it also begs the question, you know, not necessarily in this case, but in other cases too, is uh, how is the dog owner generally? Like, is this a responsible dog owner? Should this dog owner even have the dog in question. And so what what's part of the devastating thing in this case is that in some cases, yeah, the dog owner should not have the dog, but it doesn't mean that the dog should die. But because of this case, it will be almost impossible to convince a court to release a dog to another person. So again, we'll see how it pans out. I really hope that my clean uh, track record would, will stay like that. But at this point, like, honestly, it's it's really hard. So it sounds like you're hopeful that this case does go then to the Supreme Court of Canada. But I guess if that happens, there's also the chance that the Supreme Court of Canada upholds the appeal court decision. 
Yeah, there is. Yeah, that's totally true. But you know what? At this point, the damage has already been done. So it can't get any worse. Right. <laughs> it can't get any worse. And that's why, like, from the beginning, I actually, I tried speaking to legal counsel on both sides when I found out about this case going to the Court of Appeal, asking them, please, can you reconsider? Because, like, try to find a different alternative, a different option than going to the highest court in this province because, because like, I was worried about exactly what was going to happen. I just saw the writing on the wall. And, you know, we had a system in place, and sometimes... You don't want to, like, you know, get in the way of that. You want to just leave things as they are. I mean, all cases we take to court always have a risk. But some cases just should be left alone so that they don't cause a bad precedent, which unfortunately this case did. And we only have about a minute left. But what about people who hear this case and say, well, wait a minute, the dog bit somebody. This is clearly a dangerous dog and shouldn't be out and about. Yeah, I know. And you know what? I I don't know because I, I wasn't counsel in this case um, for the dog owner. It's I, I see. I appreciate that argument. But on the other hand, it does not mean that the dog cannot be managed properly in a different environment with a different person or potentially even with the same person in a different environment. Like maybe this dog isn't meant for an urban environment. I don't know. Right. You know, they're always, it just, just because a dog bit, the bottom line is just because a dog bit or caused injury does not mean the dog deserves to die. All right. Well, we'll be watching this to see if it does go uh, to the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, if so, I know we'll be talking uh, to you about this again. Rebecca Bretter, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for your time today. Thanks so much. Thanks for being with us. 15 minutes past 8 a.m. on this Sunday morning. We've talked a fair amount about fishing on this program and endangered salmon species, what to do to help endangered stocks and what can be done, what is being done, who's being blamed, and in some cases, perhaps who is being blamed but really isn't at fault. You get a different answer depending on who you ask. But let's bring in right now Jason Tonelli, who is a recreational fisherman. And uh, we've talked about uh, recreational fisheries and the restrictions this year on the show before. Jason, thanks so much for coming back. Thanks for being with us this morning. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, So how are things right now as far as, from what I'm hearing anecdotally uh, from recreational anglers, is it's pretty good season out there right now? Yeah, we've we've had amazing Chinook fishing, uh, especially through August, probably some of the best Chinook fishing that most of us have ever seen. And I mean, that actually really started in April and uh, never really stopped. And it's different this year in the the restrictions on where anglers can fish, is it not, and retention? Well, there there was some changes. I mean, we, we were shut down April to July 15th and August 1st in some areas, which we've talked about on this show in the past. Uh, and then once some of those species of concern passed through, we were, we were open to one Chinook a day through August. And then that uh, just recently changed to two Chinook a day on uh, August 28th, I think, or 29th. And what do you say to people who hear that and would voice concerns saying, well, wait a minute, we've been hearing all along this season that the Chinook are in danger, that we need to conserve them, we need to stop fishing for them? Yeah, that's that's the thing. There's a lot of misinformation out there, uh, including uh, a recent article in the paper where you see headlines uh, where First Nations want sports fishing clothes to save at-risk species, but uh, the reality is, is that nothing could be further from the truth. Like if you look at DFO's own test set numbers 
uh, we're well on our way to likely having one of the largest returns of Chinook um, to the to the Fraser in August that we've ever seen with 30 or 40 years of data. And we had amazing fishing in April, May, and, and June as well. So, you know, we're starting to see the numbers now, and the numbers are backing up what the recreational community has been saying all summer. Uh, so what do you think the biggest threat is in that we keep hearing that uh, the run is in danger, that we need to conserve uh, the Chinook run? So what do you think, if it's not recreational fishers, uh, as, as so are often pointed at, uh, what is the biggest concern or the biggest threat? Well, it's it, you really have to narrow down and, and get rid of the blanket statements. So, I mean, from uh, the Prime Minister and Fisheries Minister down, you've heard blanket statements all summer long that there's a Chinook crisis where you really need to drill down to the fact that there, the Chinook that are returning to the interior of the province, to the upper Fraser in April, May, and June, those fish have a problem. Um, there's uh, major environmental concerns up there with habitat. That's the number one problem. Um First Nations had reduced gillnet openings. Recreational anglers were closed, even though we have almost no impact on those fish. So you you can't bring those fish back by uh, managing the recreational anglers. And I mean, it's it's it really comes down to the environment. But you have to fast forward into late July and August and September. We're talking about completely different fish that have nothing to do with those Upper Fraser River stocks. They have nothing to do with the Big Bar Slide. They go into the Thompson well below that slide. And uh, we just keep hearing these blanket statements that there's a Chinook crisis. When when you look at the numbers, it's going to be probably the best Chinook return in 30 years. So, you know, that's not being reported. Uh, you mentioned the slide. I'm glad you brought that up because it does seem that that big bar slide, while it is having some major issues, it's as though it's being blamed for everything. Do you think there's some misinformation out there as to the impact that slide is having on Chinook? Yeah, it, it's uh, there's definitely some misinformation. I mean, um, it, it did have an impact on some of the um, earlier and mid-run timing Chinook. Fortunately, you know, some of the uh, fish did make it through there on their own or through helicopters. And, and now that uh, the Fraser River level has dropped, um, sockeye, pinks, and Chinook are making it through on uh, their own accord. So that's that's good. But uh, you just don't get the specifics in the news, which is unfortunate because we're looking at, um, you know, South Thompson Chinook, which is what we're really catching off the Fraser in August. They're not going past that slide. They're hanging right into the Thompson River. Um, We're looking at uh, one of the strongest runs we've ever seen for those uh, species of Chinook was in 2015. And the test sets for that time period were 668. For the month of August, and the same test sets for this period, or this year for the same time period, is 956. Hmm. So that's you know we're looking at a 43% increase on one of the best recorded uh, returns of Chinook for the month of August in the Fraser. So um, you're not hearing that, uh, and that's unfortunate because you know I think we're on our way for, uh, to having a record year. Uh, so what do you say, and you referenced uh, the newspaper article and talking about an article that was in the Star newspaper, and in that article, uh, there were some First Nations and First Nations fishers saying they would like to see the recreational fishery closed, saying that they aren't catching enough for food for ceremonial purposes, and in order to do that, they would need the recreational angling closed. What do you say to those comments? Yeah, they, they have a lot of problems with that article. I mean, just the title, First Nations Along Fraser River Want Sports Fishing Closed to Save At-Risk Species. Um, 
we're not fishing for at-risk species. DFO knows that. That's why we were allowed one Chinook a day, and that's why they've increased it to two uh, in September here, because we're fishing for um, these South Thompson fish, these lower Fraser Chinook that are going to the Harrison and the Chilliwack that aren't at risk. In fact, the runs are doing extremely well. Um, the thing about the First Nations potentially wanting us closed, that's not necessarily a new position. Um, you know, I don't agree with the numbers in the article. If you look at the DFO website, which I did this morning, uh, it shows that um, First Nations has had 117 gill net openings since April, and they've harvested uh, 15,010 Chinook. So we're not, not really sure why uh, they're quoting some of the numbers they are in the article. So where do we go from here? Because this this argument or this difference of of numbers and difference of opinion, I guess you could call it, has been going on for years. Uh, where do you where do we go forward on this, or or where do we go from this uh, to make sure that everybody uh, has access to this fishery and and at the same time uh, conserves it and makes sure that uh, it's done in a very uh, responsible way? Yeah, I mean that's. That's really the conundrum. I mean, what really what it boils down to is, uh, I mean, the recreational community does not dispute First Nations um, rights to have access to these Chinook. We want them to have access to to these Chinook. Clearly, we're having an exceptional run of Chinook in August, um, and if they need or want more Chinook, they're actually there for the taking, uh, and nobody is disputing that. What it really boils down to is uh, the methods that are used. So. Uh, we're out there uh, selectively fishing for Chinook uh, using lure, lures or herring or anchovies, and we only catch Chinook. Um, the way that the First Nations harvest these fish, uh, particularly in the lower Fraser, is through gill nets. Um, gill nets have a huge bycatch. They're catching sockeye, they're catching pinks, they're catching summer on steelhead. And uh, there's extreme conservation concern for sockeye this year. Therefore, DFO has had to seriously curtail First Nations gillnet efforts in uh, an effort to reduce any sockeye interception. So it's not about a lack of Chinook, it's about the gear types used. And even, I know we spoke with the federal fisheries minister earlier on in the summer, and he was adamant that there was no gill netting in the, the areas where that bycatch was was happening or where the Chinook are, which you and many, many others who emailed me after that interview said that simply wasn't the case. Yeah, I mean, in April, May, and June, and early July, when the when the some of the Chinook that are having some issues were in the river, uh, there was 94 gillnet openings, and that's that's on the DFO website. It actually shows the area that the gillnet openings were in, and it shows the date. So I'm not sure what he was talking about there. Um, but you know what we need to do. I mean, in, in when there's conservation concerns for other species, and this year it's sockeye, and we're having a huge run of Chinook. Um, we really need to realize it's 2020 and, and coming up in this future management decisions. And gillnets, they got to go. I mean, it's it's an archaic way of fishing. It's a non-selective way of fishing. And when we sit down in, in meetings in 2020, we really have to sit down and say, you know, how can we get First Nations more fish? How can we use selective methods? Um, it's not about a lack of Chinook. It's not about the recreational community not wanting more uh, fish for First Nations or not recognizing their priority. We agree with all that, but um, we can't use gill nets. There's pound traps, fish wheels, and there's opportunity for them to fish with commercial trawlers. Um, all those methods will, will get them more than enough fish, I think, and 
uh, it's been proposed, and I think it needs to be accepted and seriously considered going forward. We're just going to be in this cycle over and over and over. All right, we'll have to leave it there, but we can have a whole other discussion uh, on uh, that, uh, on what you just said about gill nets. Uh, Jason Tonelli, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Uh, Jason Tonelli is a recreational angler. We will talk more about this in the future. I want to talk a little bit more now about a new proposal, the idea of a $4 tax, that's $4 a year, a tax in Metro Vancouver. And if people paid that, it could build hundreds of units of affordable housing. Is it something residents that would be on board with. Well, let's bring in the mayor of New Westminster, Jonathan Cote, to talk a little bit more about this. Mayor Cote, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, good morning and thanks for having me on the show. I know this is still in the discussion phase, but what does this look like? What is the proposal that is being looked at? Yeah, well, this is uh, initially going to be coming to to the Housing Committee next next week. But what the what the proposal essentially says is uh, for for Metro Vancouver to uh, to raise this $4 tax, but what we'd be able to do with that is uh, invest into our Metro Vancouver Housing Corporation, which already owns uh, a lot of assets and land around the region, and actually be able to uh, to, to build new affordable housing on on that land. So the anticipation would be to uh, uh, to be able to build uh, 500 uh, new affordable housing units over the over the next 10 years with these funds. And where did the number come from with a, a $4 a year tax per household? Yeah, well, what they were looking for is what is the the annual amount that uh, that they need to to invest, and in. what they need to do is is raise about four million dollars a year to be able to reach those those housing targets. So that's where what equated to that that particular number. And would that be per household? It doesn't matter whether it's a house, apartment, townhouse, or size. So, so that would be your your average average household. So, uh, uh, you, uh, you know, I think higher end households would pay a little bit more with higher assessed values. Ones with lower assessed values would pay less than that. But that is the the average impact to the average household in, in Metro Vancouver. All right, and and what would you say then? Because we we often are put these ideas are put forward, and uh, people will compare it to the price of a latte or say it's really not that much money, which is true for most people. Four dollars a year is not a lot of money. But then there is the argument saying we already pay a lot in taxes, and telling us it's just a few pennies here, a few dollars here, a few dollars here. That all adds up, and it does add up to a lot of money. Yeah, no, it, it does, and I think we always need to be mindful when we are looking at uh, at these kind of initiatives. But I think we got to weigh it in terms of what what are we actually going to be able to to uh, to deliver for for that. And you know, I think it, it'd be hard pressed to talk to anyone in Metro Vancouver and say that housing and housing affordability isn't one of the biggest issues uh, facing facing our region. And this proposal alone isn't going to solve all of Metro Vancouver's housing problems, but it is a way for our regional government uh, and and local governments to. Uh, to, to actively contribute to, to a fire, uh, increasing the supply of affordable housing. So, uh, you know, I think ultimately that's what the Metro Vancouver Board is going to going to have to consider. But from my perspective, given the, the challenges we face in the region, I, I think it's a, a pretty good deal. And when we say 500 units of affordable housing uh, over a 10-year period, what are we actually talking about as far as the, what, what would these units look like and what would, what would the, how would affordable be defined? Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, Metro Vancouver actually currently operates around 3,500 uh, affordable housing units already across across the region and has for, for many decades. And uh, the model that they use is 30% of the units are, are targeted towards low-income residents where the rent is actually a percentage of their income. So it's uh, the rents charged are actually based on the incomes that, uh, that those individuals make. 
the other 70% of the units are, uh, are, are market rent, but they're actually below market rent. So they would be on the very low end of what would be considered uh, market rent in, in the region and, and in the individual, individual cities. And that model has been very effective uh, in, in the community so far. And I think the, the plan is to be able to continue that kind of a model. So then who decides who gets the housing? Yeah, well, Metro Vancouver already has a system in place that uh, that has been working for for many decades uh, uh, since the nineteen uh, late nineteen seventies, um, where they have certain criteria for uh, you know who would be available, particularly for the thirty percent, uh, which is the he- more heavily subsidized, and they've got very long wait lists uh, of many people that that are applicable, but just we don't have an, enough housing housing supply. Uh, there, so uh, systems are already in place that would be very similar to to what the Metro Vancouver Housing Corporation currently uses today. And uh, have you looked at other options as well? And again, I realize that it sounds like we're we're fighting over or or taking issue with a small amount of money. Again, with the idea of four dollars a year, the average per household. Uh, but I do think people will be asking the question: Well, rather than than nickeling and diming people, is there not some other way where? other tax dollars can be found or other efficiencies can be found to come up with this money? Yeah, well, you know, I think, uh, you know, the ultimate uh, solution is, is really partnerships that involve all levels levels of government, and uh, you know I think this is a proposal that uh, kind of speaks to to what the local governments can do. But I, I guess what we're hoping to say is if we're able to raise this, uh, you know, what what is a relatively modest amount for 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 a regional government? Can we actually leverage that and turn and turn these units into a lot more units with, for, with partnerships with with the provincial and federal government? So that is that is obviously another angle what we can do to try and get as much value for for this contribution from from the local governments as possible. And so where does it stand now as far as this idea and going forward with it? Yeah, well, the first step is to uh, uh, to, get, to get a recommendation from the housing committee, which will happen uh, ha- happen this week. The housing committee is is very familiar with this and has been having workshops uh, throughout this year on on this topic and a lot of different uh, options to look at tools to improve affordable housing. Uh, if it does get the endorsement of the housing committee, then I would anticipate over the next month or so it will go to the actual Metro Vancouver board for approval uh, for the 2020 budget. All right. So and will people have a chance to provide feedback or get their say on this idea? Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, Metro Vancouver is uh, always looking for for feedback, particularly through our through our budget processes, and uh, and I think that would be the opportunity. But I think residents can always contact their uh, you know their local mayors and uh, and Metro Vancouver board representatives to let them know uh, what they what they think about about this proposal and uh, and its pros and cons. All right, uh, and uh, don't want to throw a curveball at you, but we are talking housing and affordable housing in the region. Uh, you are the mayor of New Westminster. Uh, I'm curious because we've been talking so much these past few weeks about the situation in Oppenheimer Park in Vancouver and the tent city that has been occupying that green space. Do you have an issue with tents in parks or public spaces in New Westminster? Yeah, not not to the the similar scale. Uh, no doubt, we we have challenges like many other uh, cities in, in Metro Vancouver with uh, with street homeless, and uh, uh, and and we do have a few areas where there are, are, are smaller smaller areas, but but not to the same scale as uh, as, as a community like Vancouver is is dealing with uh, with there. And you know, homelessness is a, a really complicated issue and uh, and really difficult, and and ultimately is not connected to to our 
previous discussion uh, in, in terms of a solution there. But, uh, uh, you know, that's another thing where I think all the levels of government need to really need to get together and uh, and get people off the streets. Uh, you know, we've had tremendous success in, in the city of New Westminster when we've been able to open transition homes uh, and, and different social housing to, to help get people off the streets. Uh, we've actually seen results of our, our street homeless population stabilize and, and go down during periods because of that housing. So, uh, you know, we definitely think there's a link between, between building that type of social housing and being able to get people off the streets. Right. And how does your city deal with people in tents in public spaces? Are they allowed to stay? Yeah, well, we haven't had a, a major major encampment. Uh, you know, we do have uh, our, our police and our bylaw departments do do work with that. We also do work with uh, some of the uh, local housing agencies in, in, in our community that do provide social housing so that we can try and provide options so that pe- we can get people into in, into, into housing housing options. So, uh, you know, I, I, we haven't had the, the same situation that's, that's happening in Vancouver, and it is a really, really difficult situation. Uh, uh, when, when, when we're talking about, about housing rights uh, there. But, uh, you know, to me, I, I get back to the ultimate solution. If, if we don't have people, places for, for people to, uh, to stay that, that are homeless, uh, it makes it very difficult to, to move beyond uh, these, these kind of difficult social things in, in our parks and in different areas in our communities when this happens. Uh, right, because it does seem like we, we're talking about affordable housing and we're talking about a tax to build affordable housing units. But it does seem if we can't deal with the issue of homelessness and people who uh, are perhaps you could say, in the most need of housing. How do we even get our heads around dealing with building units and affordable units for, other, for others as well? No, it, exactly. And it's, it's a tough one because I, I think the whole housing issue has, has a whole spectrum all the way from the challenges with homelessness, uh, you know, all the way up to, to, to affordable home ownership. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, my gut tells me, you, you know, you got to start from, from the people that are most in need, and those are the people that, that are living on the street. But having said that, that doesn't mean that uh, cities and regions shouldn't be looking at the other other spectrums, because ultimately all of all the different segments of, of housing affordability are all connected and put pressure on, on each other. All right. So we will leave it there, and we'll certainly watch and see what happens in the discussions around the idea of the, the average $4 a year tax to build more housing. Mayor Cote, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Okay, thanks for having me on the show.